Hello and welcome to the Legacy of Generosity podcast, developed by the Leva Legacy Committee of the Minnesota Gift Planning Association. We are a group of fundraising professionals here to grow and learn with you, our listeners. Twice a month, our co-hosts are joined by a special guest to talk about all things related to being a stronger fundraiser and nonprofit leader. A huge thank you to our sponsors, the Minnesota Initiative Foundations, for making this show possible. Now, without further ado, let's dive into today's show. Here are your hosts. Hi, welcome. Thanks for joining our podcast today. I'm Christy Ackley, one of your co-hosts, and here with Gay Gonerman, my co-host. Good morning, everybody, or whatever time of day it is you're listening. And we are here with Katrina Pearson from Katrina Lynn Consulting. So excited to have her join the conversation today. Thanks, Christy. A pleasure to be here. Well, what we're going to be talking about today is fundraising campaigns, all the things about fundraising campaigns. And I'm so excited. Katrina has been doing fundraising campaigns since she was like, what, Katrina, two years old, something like that? (laughs) Long time anyways. Pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) So we're going to get all kinds of um, experience and expertise from her. And yeah, I'm just really excited to, to dive in. Katrina, do you want to introduce yourself, tell the listeners a little bit about you and your background? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Christy. So like Christy mentioned, um, I have been lucky to be able to, to dedicate my whole professional career to working with nonprofits and around the areas of leadership and fund development and um, marketing and storytelling. And um, I live in Duluth, Minnesota, northern Minnesota, um, where we are blessed with many, many feet of snow currently. Um, hopefully when you're listening, it'll be a little warmer where you are. Um, yeah, and I, uh, I've just uh, been lucky enough to be able to work with nonprofits um, and communities who have been wanting to change something about their community, add something, create something that that was only a part of their imagination. And uh, I've had some wonderful mentors along the way where I've learned uh, sort of the art and science of, of fundraising. And that, that brings me uh, to where we are today. I'm also a, a mother of two, which is uh, my most important job on this planet. Definitely. Katrina, tell us a little bit more about uh, your interests beyond the world of fundraising. Sure. So um, I guess those who know me would probably say that I'm obsessed with um, tennis and yoga. I'm a yoga instructor and I have a yoga studio here in Duluth um, and in all things wellness, uh, really enjoy spending time outside. Um, love the sport of baseball and, and uh, I'm a youth sports coach, which I really enjoy. It kind of keeps me balanced. Um, so I'm not spending so much time in my brain. And then uh, speaking of brains, I'm really passionate about neuroscience, uh, applied neuroscience and neurobiology, and what we can learn about um, human behavior and how we can be more empowered about how we respond to the world around us. Those all, everything you mentioned also comes in very handy as a parent. So good applications there too. Yeah, well, I do my best. <laughs> it is, it is, uh, it's interesting. I've got a nine-year-old and a 14-year-old. Um, and my, my nine-year-old is currently, uh, she, she's a, an animal lover. And so she has uh, hamsters. So she called, she's got a YouTube channel called Nora the Hamster Lover. Um, so it's, what's a, 
<laughs> what what's really neat about being a parent, I think, as your children, you know, get older, is is that you can witness them unfolding as you know who they are, mm-hmm. um, and when they have passions, talents, and interests that are completely different than yours, um, you know, that opportunity to nurture those. So yeah, definitely. Uh, always talking about our feelings uh, at our house, psychology and emotion. Nice. nice. That's awesome. Well, Gay, I don't know if you know this, but Katrina and I actually work on projects sometimes together. We're working on a project in Wisconsin right now together. And every time um, we get introduced to a new client, Katrina likes to call out that I used to be in the military, that I was in the Navy. So I like to call out her yoga stuff all the time too, and her other creative endeavors, her directing of movies, all of that kind of stuff. So I guess we each have our thing that we find fascinating about the other person. <laughs> yeah. well, I'm so impressed. I mean, who can be? I could never make it through boot camp. Not in a million years. I don't think I'd make it through 36 hours of it. <laughs> yep. That or medical school. Not nope. on my list. <laughs> I tell you what, I just want to go back on deployment and lose like the 40 pounds that I've gained since I've been out of the military. <laughs> best weight loss plan ever is joining the military. So (laughs) anyways, I suppose we should dive into the topic at hand here. Um, So Katrina, I know that when you start with a new campaign, one of the first things you like to do is what you call a donor engagement process. Do you want to tell our listeners a little bit about what that looks like, why you start there, you know, what the benefits of it are, Um, just kind of run us through the, through all of that. Sure, Christy. Yeah, so a donor engagement process can can take many shapes uh, in a formal sense. Um, maybe I'll give an example of a, a, a process called a feasibility study that would involve engaging one's donors. So the purpose of such a study um, is to really get your stakeholders and your donors and you know potential donors in uh, on the ground floor of your project that you're planning. It's an opportunity for them to sort of get the first view, the sneak peek at, you know, what it is that you're proposing to do um, and helps to really build ownership um, among your potential donors, as well as leaders, potential volunteer leaders for your, you know, future campaign steering committee or uh, future board. So a feasibility study is you know what comes from the feasibility study in terms of what you learn from your conversations during that study with those folks is just as important as the process itself and the experience that the donor receives or has um, because of the study that they're participating in. So ultimately, what we're trying to find out when we're conducting a feasibility study is you know what's a reasonable um, you know goal for you know the, the actual fundraising campaign itself. So financially, what's reasonable? We're also trying to find out who would potentially be interested in making a, a gift that would um, be considered either a leadership level gift or a major gift. Um, because during a, a major campaign, what you're looking for is essentially 80% of the funds that you raise come from 20% uh, of your donor base. So so in a capital campaign, the average gift is much, much larger than in a typical annual campaign. 
And so we're trying to find out who might be willing to make that gift uh, or, you know, those gifts. We're also looking for, um, you know, different responses, feedback around how the project is being positioned. How is the story that you present them with and, and, the, and the case for support that you present them with, how is that being received? And, and what are the different ways that you can adjust or tweak that case for support before you go out and get serious about raising money? So essentially, you know, I, I think a, a more um, appropriate you know, word or description for a feasibility study would be, like you said, a donor engagement process, um, which is wonderful. It really is the absolute necessity of uh, kind of what I would consider preliminary planning for a capital campaign. Sometimes we'll have, you know, potential clients call us and say, yeah, we don't really think we need a, a, a feasibility study because, you know, we raised $5 million five years ago. So we kind of know that we can do that. And so, and I, you know, I, I usually, uh, you know, offer them another perspective um, mm -hmm. that it's not just about how much you can raise. It's how do we build community and unity around this idea and help mm -hmm. align the right people early on to ensure success in the campaign. Can I just zero in a little bit on what you were saying about leadership? Because you're looking to identify the financial support and financial lead gifts, but as well as volunteer leadership, people who are going to devote their time. And do you have you found some challenges that you've had to work through in that process? Or do you often find you just know exactly who the right person is and the timing is right for them? Or have you seen people who've maybe been reluctant, but then they've really stepped up to a new level of leadership? What's your experience been with that? And how important is it for the success of the project? Yeah, thanks, Gay. There's so much that I could say about this topic. And I, I really, um, because I'm so fascinated by humans and human behavior and leadership, um, it's definitely one of the one of the um, ways in which I approach my work as a consultant is really thinking through personality and 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 behavior and and, and who best uh, or who is best suited to serve in a leadership capacity. The single most important person in a capital campaign, uh, in terms of whether or not it will be successful, is the capital campaign chair. An executive director or CEO is important. The development director, who may also be serving as a campaign director, is important. Um, all of the board members are important, but the committee, the capital campaign committee chair, um, that position is absolutely essential because it's sort of like, like parenting, right? So like when we're parents, kind of back to that the theme, um, we can either tell our kids to do the dishes, right? Or, or to stop leaving their junk around the house. Or we can demonstrate ourselves to stop leaving our Capri Sun uh, straw wrappers laying around the house, right? Um, so, so the chair has to be somebody who is about doing the work and they're not, they don't feel above the work. They have to be willing to participate in meetings. They have to be willing to be vulnerable, right? They have to be willing to show mm -hmm. that they themselves are human, that they don't know everything about every donor and everything about the project. And there might be a question that they have, uh, you know, about a financial, you know, report that they're not afraid to ask. And so, so that person really has to be somebody who's, um, humble enough to um, to to show what they 
you know, don't know and to be willing to ask questions in front of their peers because that's how they can create connection with their peers and that's how they build trust. And at the same time, they also need to be courageous enough to demonstrate through their actions that they can overcome their fear for the betterment of their community because we're all afraid. None of us, I mean, even all of us as professional fundraisers, we're not, we don't get up in the morning and wow, chomping at the bit. Well, I shouldn't assume gay that, you know, you know, but like, oh, I'm to phone and ask somebody for a million dollars again today. You know, it's like, no, we have our own fears to overcome. Right. And so, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and yes, I've had, I've had so many beautiful experiences working with volunteers, um, on a campaign steering committee on boards. Um, and one of the greatest, you know, treasures that I have in working in these different campaigns that I feel like I can hold on to in my heart is truly the experience of getting to know those folks. And they keep me going and they keep the staff going, mm-hmm. right? Because they're volunteers. They're not getting paid to do that work, yet they show up day after day after day after day. And they bring that absolute passion, the kind that, you know, they pay to be at the table, right? It's the chair is usually making a significant gift. And so um, it can be challenging, especially when they're, maybe they work full time. Um, I've had a um, number of chairs who are also business owners. And what they say is true about busy people get things done, but that doesn't mm-hmm. mean easy to fit in their schedule when you also have, you know, busy schedules. So, mm-hmm. um, you know, that's been such a pleasure for me getting, getting to work with people who are just challenging me and, and challenging, you know, intellectually being a thought partner and really being strategic about how to go about things and build relationships. And, um, yeah, I've just had so many, um, meaningful experiences working with chairs. Um, and we don't always know who that person is going to be to, to answer your question, Gay, um, right off the bat, I'm working on a campaign right now and the study has been completed and we are actually assembling the steering committee right now. And they haven't done a capital campaign for a very, very long time. And right now, the executive director and I are still unsure who's going to step into that role. Um, mm-hmm. And so sometimes you have to make peace with the unknown and recognize that and believe. I think a lot of our work's success is about mindset and belief that the mm-hmm. right person is going to emerge through this process. If you're spending the time in the relationships with those steering committee members who are volunteers. So Katrina, what do you do when um, the organization doesn't want to do a study because they want to jump in now? They they say, I've raised $5 million before. I can raise maybe the, this campaign smaller. It's only $3 million. So I don't, I don't want to take the time. I don't want to invest the dollars. Um, and my staff is completely capable of doing this. I don't need a volunteer committee. How do you address those kind of um, objections to doing the work that, that you do with the groups? Rock'em, sock'em robots. <laughs> I try not to come on too strong, uh, which is something I, I'm working on. So I think what I, what, typically what I do, rather than try to persuade them that, that, that I'm right and they're wrong, is, uh, is I share with them the stories and the case studies from the projects that I've been a part of. And I try to connect them with the executive directors or the uh, CEOs or development directors who have 
who have been through it and come out on the other end um, so that they can get an understanding of what that experience is. So it's not me making those recommendations. It's, hey, let me have you talk to, um, you know, Brad Conkler at Central Care. You know, he's been through this a million times. I don't need, you know, talk to Brad, you know, so that that is one thing that I, I, I do like to, mm-hmm. for those clients that are willing to, and I've got, you know, some wonderful loyal clients that I've been able to work with for a long time, they are willing to have those conversations. So I appreciate that. So that's one thing. Another thing is that, you know, when you're in consulting, and this has taken a really long time for me to learn, and I still struggle with it. Sometimes you have to know when it's not necessarily the right fit. Um, and sometimes you have to be willing to, you know, you can try your best and sometimes somebody else is a better fit for whatever reason, you know, you might remind them of their like cousin or something and they, you know, they've never trusted. I mean, you know, there's any number of reasons why something might not, you know, now that's sort of like on the front end of a project, right? Now let's say, let's say that the executive director hires with board approval, you know, hires me as a, hires our firm as, as a, uh, as campaign council, right? And so the executive director is all on board, but the board isn't um, necessarily mm-hmm. with, right, with the plan. And so typically what I do in that situation is I try to identify who the um, kind of influencers are on the board. Mm-hmm. Um, and those in particular, usually the influencers, not always, but usually the influencers are people who have had more experience working in campaigns or working in philanthropy or community development. And so really supporting and empowering and encouraging, you know, them to lift up their voice. Um, So it's not necessarily coming from this outside source, but someone, you know, who they have a lot of trust in um, is sort of helping Mm -hmm. to to guide the way. Um, But ultimately I, I, you know, for the most part, it's such a niche, you know, consulting and and capital campaigns, unless you've been through it as a staff person or as a board member pretty intimately, you don't really have an idea of what it takes. And so most folks are, are actually really eager. They're really eager to learn and to contribute ideas. Um, and I love dialogue. I enjoy when people, when board members are devil's advocates, I, I, you know, it's, I think that's, when somebody disagrees with you, that's a that's a sign that they're engaging with the content mm-hmm. you're presenting. So I don't necessarily discourage those conversations because I think learning can come from them as well. So can these types of studies um, or in- engagement process be used when it comes to legacy giving and to planned giving? Yeah, absolutely. It definitely uh, takes a little bit different shape. Uh, in that, as you know, many times we don't know um, what will come from an estate specifically when it comes to the goal amount, right? And so in that case, then we're we're exploring uh, more about their, you know, basically their, their, their loyalty to the organization, their intent to the organization, what kind of support they might need in, in making any final or further decisions, um, about their wealth. Um, so it's absolutely a process that can be utilized for planned gifts and for major gifts. Yes. And oftentimes many campaigns are, you know, combined planned and, uh, and major gifts. So switching gears just a little bit, um, are, what are you finding in our current environment where 
um, we're all sort of trying to navigate our way to a new normal. And as a, a lot of campaigns revolve around space and spaces where people gather, um, are you, what are you finding with that's happening in organizations right now, as far as their thought process around raising money for capital needs? Yeah. What a great question. They, you know, most, I think all the feasibility studies and capital campaigns that we are presently working on are, I just like think through, but I think they are all related to bricks and mortar projects. So most of our clients have, uh, their employees have gone back to the office and, um, and are utilizing the office, you know, maybe not quite as much as they used to. Maybe they're realizing that, oh, we don't have to require travel every day if we have employees who live out of town. And, you know, more flexibility is required, um, certainly. And I think people, uh, especially if they do have children at home, um, they're learning how best to organize their lives. And so um, we are seeing certainly um, less time in the office. But but most of the projects we're working on right now are about um, raising funds to support the development of a physical space. I think one thing that's been interesting, though, that we've seen over the last couple of years is the actual donor engagement study. You've been able to do a lot more virtual conversations with the donors instead of Previously, they were all in person. Yeah. Right. It's, it's, has that um, affected your outcomes? Does you know? Do you feel like you're still getting that personal interaction with the donors in the way that you have in the past? So I would say yes and no. Um, it's been. I think that our communities and the way that we organize change in our communities has has definitely evolved because of COVID and, and, you know, needing to connect with one another digitally and make those accommodations. Um, so it's, I think in some ways being able to participate in studies, um, via Zoom or, um, phone has actually, uh, been really appreciated by donors. Um, and in particular, so living in Minnesota, as you know, we have, this whole subset of people who uh, are, you know, snowbirds or winter Texans or, you know, however you want to kind of refer to yourself. But so, and, and in the past, I would say organizations have not always been as good as they could be at including those folks. Mm-hmm. You know, they haven't reached out to them. Um, they haven't set up, you know, an ability for those folks like board members, for example, who would also be donors to a campaign to participate in meetings while they're, you know, in Texas. And so I think that's one of the really beautiful outcomes from COVID as far as it relates to, um, you know, donor involvement uh, is that we are better. I think we're more inclusive in a way. That's not to say that people don't have problems with technology and that they don't need support. But I think it's been really neat to see that. And also I think for many folks um, who didn't consider themselves to be technologically savvy have now figured it out and mm-hmm. we all run into speed bumps, but, um, mm-hmm. but they, they now have the confidence to engage in that way. So that's been kind of neat. And then, you know, we, we really haven't necessarily seen um, what I would consider to be any, you know, really severe negative influences on our 
donor engagement on our conversations or on the outcomes um, during our study because of the inability to, to be with them in person. Um, and it's been easier to get donors scheduled. That's one of the hardest parts mm. of conducting a study is just getting people to return phone calls because you're like number 87th on their list of to do's. <laughs> They're not, you know, you're not, you're not number one. And so you got to be realistic about that. If you're the one making that call, um, mm-hmm. that's been really, really neat. Now that said, you can't, you know, how can we measure? We can, we can measure human connection from, you know, the feelings that, that we get and the kind of the self-reporting of, of, do you feel connected in this particular situation? Do you feel connected in this situation? I don't know that there's, uh, well, I'm really, now I'm really curious about what studies there are out there about that. Um, so I can't necessarily speak to that. I can speak to the energy that you can't necessarily see and feel. And I think body language, um, it, you know, is a big part of creating uh, on an experience um, in, a, in a discussion. So we are missing out on that piece. Um, absolutely. And I think some folks start to kind of zone out and they, you know, I know I'm one of them. I don't do very well sitting in front of a screen and I've noticed that for some reason, so prior to COVID, you know, it would either, it would be a phone or a video, right. And it would just kind of depend. And now it's like every meeting is on video conference, right? Like what, what happened? <laughs> so, and I know I'm not, I'm not alone right now. So I guess I've had that same thought. Yeah. Really? I used to call people. Yeah, I used to just call them and it was okay to do that. Mm-hmm. With just your your voice. Yeah, exactly. We've gotten so used to seeing each other, you know. Yeah. Let me let me share one story in in we may have recorded this already, but um prior to COVID, we had this beautiful experience where we did have a donor who was out of town where when we were conducting the study. And um and I knew that they had, you know, great uh, potential financially um, and were, you know, very, very generous with their community. So I, I, I had a really good feeling about that conversation, um, you know, for that particular organization as a prospect. And um, so I really didn't want to conduct it by phone. Uh, I just wanted to wait until we could get a chance to see them in person. Right. Um, but we didn't get that opportunity. So we did go ahead and conduct the interview. My colleague, Amy, conducted the interview. And, um, and during the conversation, they actually didn't, uh, necessarily show their cards in that they ended up later coming out probably two or three months post, uh, feasibility study interview and said that they would be willing to basically pay for the entire project. And so while we didn't learn that right there on the phone, something happened there was a connection made. There was trust built. Mm-hmm. Um, despite not being in person, that's probably the single biggest individual gift that we've uncovered, um, at least in greater Minnesota, with the work that we've done. Wow. Great connection. Yeah. You know, Katrina, you mentioned about the snowbirds or winter southerners or or whatever and as you were you're talking about that it's making me think it it really feels like in minnesota we have a, a season where our donors are gone and then we have a season where our a lot of our donors are here but it's summer and we're all like oh my gosh 
Minnesota in the summer, everybody's like doing all of these things and these events and expanding to a more virtual, you know, and um, maybe phone calls sometimes still too, (laughs) Um, really does open up the landscape of when you can talk to your donors and when you can engage your donors, where we kind of felt like we were crammed between like May and September um, in the past. Yeah, no, absolutely. Really good point. There's this like year round opportunity. It's it's less of a seasonal um, strategy. I mean, there's still seasonality to it, of course. Like, like don't ask for a major gift on you know mm-hmm. first because we're all preparing to pay you know our our tax. <laughs> yeah, no, right on. Can you talk about a little bit, Katrina, about um, how you set up your working relationship with the staff uh, when you're doing a project and do you have a way of kind of setting expectations, clarifying roles? Um, which parts are you going to take on? What is the, uh, you know, what is their investment going to be as far as staff time? How has that worked for you? Yeah, thanks. That's a really good question. So I think one of the key ingredients, if not the key ingredient to a um, positive working relationship, uh, is to, like you said, to set expectations on the front end. So one of the things that we do is right off the bat, right off the bat, clarify the roles and the tasks of each person on the team. Um, for a major gifts efforts, we typically have the, uh, you know, the, the, uh, head of the organization. So the CEO, we have the, um, oftentimes uh, like a development director or a campaign director. We have the board chair, who is not as involved typically, but is certainly more involved on the front end of a project. And we have the capital campaign committee chair, who is heavily, heavily involved, sort of in an unpaid staff capacity, and then our firm as campaign counsel. Um, So that's typically kind of the team. And a couple of things that we've really found to be helpful um, from a practical sense um, to kind of keep everybody on track is... We've got um, what we call a a blueprint for success, sort of just a a working plan with timelines and targets and uh, just just a work plan that we bring to every meeting. And we don't, you know, walk through it at every meeting, but we make sure that we're on track. So, you know, getting basically what that does is is, uh, just adds a layer of accountability um, for everybody on the team. And also it helps us think through, you know, what our agendas should look like for those meetings. Um, so that's really huge. So just, just keeping that kind of, you know, front and center in our meetings. Also frequency is important, especially early on um, in a, in a campaign. So we usually meet every week and having like a consistent day, like, okay, Wednesdays is the day because then everybody can really set their clock um, and their schedules to that particular rhythm, and they can anticipate what they're going to need to share and what work they're going to need to do between meetings. So that's another one. Um, mm-hmm. I, I would say those two those two things are are have been the, the most useful. That said, every team is different, right? And mm-hmm. I mean, it's like people are are they they come with their own experiences, their own ideas, their own positive and negative. Um, perceptions. Um, and so I think too, just fostering a culture where 
you know, within that campaign, that little small campaign group, not, not the campaign steering committee, but the small group that I just talked about, that's mostly staff and consultant fostering a, a, a culture where people can ask any question, right? There's no sacred, like nothing is sacred here. We can, we respectfully and compassionately can ask questions at any time we can challenge each other. And when something isn't like working, whether it's the, somebody's working style or um, maybe they're, somebody's feeling like they're not getting all the information, whatever it is, being able to say that aloud. Yeah. And that definitely can take some time and a little trial and error, especially if you're just, these are, you're forming new relationships at the same time you're, you're working, you're diving in and working together on a, with a big goal. So it can take a little time to get to that, um, to get in sync and all be on the same page. Yeah. One of the, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it just clicks boom. And it's like, wow, this is easy. Like we're, you know, we're like in our control group and other times you're like, am I speaking like Japanese? Why don't they understand me? You know, and you can all kind of feel that way. But, but uh, one tool that we found to be pretty useful and there's a variety of different, you know, ways that you can approach this uh, personality profiling, um, but is disc uh, I Mm-hmm. in the workplace mm-hmm. can be really useful when you're starting with a new team that's going after something really big and you have to like really get up and you know up and running together aligned really quickly and essentially it's uh, just a process for those people who might not know what it is um for assessing your work style and your and your personality in the workplace um and you know there's a little bit of a cost to it but the thing that i love about disc versus um you know some of the other um programs for for personality assessment is that you can actually take two people like Christy and I and look at different um, personality tendencies so Christy and I would take the test and then we would we would say okay we want to spit out a comparison report of Christy and Katrina now let's see okay on the spectrum of risk taking you know Christy's here and and Katrina's over here or on the spectrum of of the discipline to get through boot camp Christy's over here it helps you to identify where there might be some potential gaps of um, similarity. Like it helps you even anticipate where there might be misunderstandings or conflict because of major gaps or differences. Um, I tend to, I mean, we all get along with people who are like us, right? So, so Mm -hmm. it's harder for me. I'm not, I appreciate analytics, but I don't approach life from that as much as I approach life from a relational standpoint, which brought me to fundraising, but there are some incredible fundraisers, even major gift officers, um, not just annual, you know, gift officers or, um, or annual, annual program directors, but you know, who do have a beautiful ability to approach those conversations, um, from an analytical perspective. So it's, it's, it's important that the team is well-rounded in a tool like disc or another, um, profile can really um, sort of almost like bring you it's almost like it can it's like a warp speed right it can develop the team much more quickly and then the last thing I'll say about a program like that is it also helps to create like a shared vocabulary mm-hmm. um, so you know if you're somebody who is always late like me and has work, been working on that your whole life you know there, there there's there's some tendencies within the disc personality profiling and it would call that out. And so then your colleagues can understand, Oh, okay. That's not, she's not trying to be disrespectful. She's poor at time management or, you know, whatever it is. And she's 
put that one more thing in. So, and so it just creates more of a, an environment of, um, I think respect and, uh, and empathy, um, on the team too. Yeah. I found that to be a useful tool with our work teams and, um, it can kind of give you a visual of the balance or imbalance of the different strengths that you each bring. And there might be one person in your group who just has a certain trait that no one else has. So you always have, it sort of points out. So when certain types of topics come up, we need to listen to that person. <laughs> they might not, they might be the only voice in the room that's got a specific perspective on it on a certain thing yeah absolutely did gay did you uh did you spend a lot of time the team digesting what you learned yeah yeah we we went through we that process with one of my work teams and with a um outside expert and uh you know we just kept peeling back the layers and diving deeper into the analytics and it was really really fascinating yeah i absolutely love it the, the one thing i would say to be careful of with that is remember that people are all able to operate outside of their own box right so i think sometimes when we do those it's like oh mm -hmm. the that she's a big picture thinker, so she can't possibly analyze this data over here, right? I think so. That's just like I guess the caution about those programs mm -hmm. is let people mm -hmm. surprise you. You know, be willing to be surprised by your colleagues too, because we can all um, we can all change and we can all offer more than I think we think we can sometimes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yep. So for our listeners, I'm just going to say that um, I'll link some information about DISC in the show notes, because I know a lot of times we're listening to podcasts, we're driving, and you can't write that down. And, and maybe you've never heard of DISC before. Um, there's another assessment that I really enjoy called Five Voices, that is a um, similar type of work style. And they focus really on what voice you show up in a conversation as. And so, Katrina, when you talk about the analytical person in, in the Five Voices, it's the guardian. The guardian is the one who... I personally struggle with the most because they're the ones that are thinking through risk and, you know, what details don't we have? And until I understood what a guard, what a guardian was and like, I would always be like, oh man, they're always like telling me, no, I can't do something. And it wasn't that it was that they were trying to protect the team, you know, protect the organization, protect whatever that's that, that was their role. And they just needed to know that things were thought through before they could move forward. It's not that they couldn't move forward. Katrina, we're getting close to wrapping up here. Um, this has been fun. You never know where a conversation is going to go. Um, so it's, it's, it's always fun to just let that, let things uh, unroll as they might. So um, we really, really appreciate your sharing your insights with us today. And I want to ask one last question and then give you one last opportunity too. Um, we always like to ask our guests, what is the most valuable piece of advice you've ever been given? And you can maybe give an example of how you've used that. And then also, is there anything else you want to just kind of plug or promote to our listeners? Um, whether, you know, maybe you just published a book or a <laughs> or you have a new video on YouTube, you want them to see whatever, whatever you choose. Thanks, Gay. So 
you know, I don't remember. I know in our conversations in the past, I've answered a similar question. Um, so today, the way that I want to respond to that question is the best advice I've been given as it relates to fundraising came from one of my mentors, um, Dayton Hulkren. Um, and it was the idea, basically, he told me, Katrina, it is not up to you to decide whether or not a donor should have the opportunity to choose to give. So, so by not asking if they're interested or willing to participate in a campaign project, you are taking that opportunity from them because they don't even know about it. And that reframe was the, I mean, that really changed the way that I look at fundraising from it being a sales heavy endeavor to it is my job to communicate what is happening in somebody's community and invite them to decide whether or not it's something that they would like to be a part of. And that's, that's truly, I think, an example of releasing and letting go and letting what is supposed to happen happen with one's generosity. The yoga of fundraising right there. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you got it. And then, uh, uh, something to plug. Well, I am writing a screenplay actually. Um, it's, it's, uh, we'll see what, we'll see if I have any friends and family after, uh, after I, <laughs> basically everybody is real in it. Um, you know, you know what, what I'd like to, what I would like to plug is the leave a legacy website and all of the wonderful, seriously, all wonderful podcasts. I was so lucky to be a part of that committee and just to be able to participate in a variety of different ways now, but whether you're just getting started out with, with plan giving or, um, major gift programs, or you are pretty well established and you need resources to educate your board or to educate somebody new on staff. Um, I think the Leave a Legacy program is just um, absolutely top notch. And we, and, and it's not just Minnesotans who can access it. It's, it's, it's people from all around the world. And so um, I would really encourage people to, to check out the resources on that um, because they really, they can learn so much. And speaking of that, I need to get back on there too and see what's new. Such a great endorsement. Christy, how do they find that Leave a Legacy website? Yeah, it's just uh, leavealegacymn.org um, and then backslash resource tag library or dash library. So, And we actually just shared about the resource library on our Facebook page and on our Instagram. So follow us on either one of those and we'll, we're always sure to share our, our resources with you guys. So Katrina, thanks for, for sharing that. And since she didn't plug it herself, I'm going to plug it. Uh, Katrina is also got the Oliver Inn in Duluth, Minnesota, that she and her partner have been renovating and should be open soon, right? Yeah, we're, open. It? we're open. Open. We're open. So the next, nice. So the yeah. next time you're in Duluth, make sure to check out the Oliver Inn. Thanks, Chris. Um, yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much for joining our podcast today. Thanks, Katrina. Thanks, Gay. Um, and remember, if you heard anything here that you thought was helpful, share this with your colleagues, like us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, whatever. 
but this is a free resource as is all of the resources on our website. So share away. Thank you for listening to today's show. We hope you gained some helpful insights or practical advice. And if you did, we'd love to hear about it. So please take a moment and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or comment on one of our recent social posts. And if you send us a screenshot of your review, we'll send you a Legacy of Generosity sticker. Don't forget to subscribe to the show so you'll never miss an episode. And follow us on LinkedIn at Leave a Legacy MN or Instagram at Legacy of Generosity Podcast. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time.